Okay, we'll we'll get started. Okay, the audio is recording, so if you guys want your voices to be heard, um, you certainly can make that so. Uh, <laughs> however, however, we'll get started. We'll we'll begin with a with a brief prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Glory. Oh, excuse me, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, without end. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so this is Think Like a Theologian. Um, most of these folks were here last time as well. This is basically just something that I wanted to use as an excuse to talk about things I think are interesting. Um, but it's called Think Like a Theologian because the point of it is to share things that are things I learned in a formal study of theology that you don't necessarily hear in other places, but that all the same kind of changed the way that I thought about God and creation and the universe and, and a lot of things like that. So it's a lot of sort of behind-the-scenes ideas and a lot of behind-the-scenes information, a lot of the philosophical backgrounds that a lot of Catholic teachings come out of, not necessarily things that you would hear in standard catechesis, and that's probably for the best. There are a lot of things that are immediately pressing to your salvation and things that you probably ought to know as just like a standard Catholic or, or Christian even. This kind of stuff that we're going to be talking about isn't necessarily that but it does affect a lot of that kind of stuff. As I mentioned, it's sort of the intellectual background for a lot of that kind of stuff. So the idea is that we are going to be trying to form a sort of mature way of thinking about a lot of the same stuff that we've been hearing since we were kids. A lot of times you hear about certain things in Catholicism and you kind of go throughout your entire life hearing the same stuff that you heard when you were a kid, and sometimes it's said in a different way, and oftentimes it is, and that's good, but a lot of times we carry into adulthood a lot of honestly kind of childish ways of looking at things. For instance, take the idea of introducing God the Father to a small child. Oftentimes we use the image of an old man in the clouds, which I think is good. However, if you go into adulthood still thinking that God the Father is an old man in the clouds, you're going to end up with some pretty glaring theological inaccuracies, heresies even. So part of what you have to do as you grow up is you have to be able to kind of shed some of those childish images, or at the very least, nuance some of those childish images. Because the idea that God the Father is an old man in the clouds, like I mentioned, was actually kind of a good thing to use to describe God the Father to a kid. Now, when you really press it, God isn't old. One of the things we talked about last summer was that God is eternal, not necessarily meaning that he's forever, but that he's outside of time entirely. He exists in this sort of eternal now, this sort of ever-present being where all of existence is sort of present to him at once. He sort of experiences it all in this same eternal moment. But suffice to say, God isn't really old. He's also not really a man. The divine essence doesn't actually have a gender. Christ has a gender, but that's because he takes human nature on in the incarnation. But in the divine nature itself, there isn't really a a sex or a gender for it so it's not technically accurate to say that he's a man either and it's also not really the case that god is in the clouds um, being transcendent being spiritual being immaterial means that he doesn't actually have a physical location so he's not old he's not a man and he's not in the clouds in why then michael would you say it's okay to tell a kid oh here's a picture of god the father and it's a picture of an old man in the clouds well, it's because there's something like oldness about God. There's something like manness about God. I mean, he describes himself with masculine pronouns and, and so forth. He identifies himself as a father to his people, all that kind of stuff. And there's something like being in the clouds about him, this idea of him being, um, in a certain sense, 
above everything else, above kind of our earthly reality and that kind of stuff. So we're going to be kind of taking that approach to a lot of different ideas. We're going to be taking a look at some things that maybe we believed when we were kids, but now that we're adults, we maybe have to kind of take a second look at and say, okay, is this, does this really mean what you think it means or, or not so much? Because a lot of times people make mistakes because they accidentally believe some childish version of, of the truth that they probably learned in a very well-meaning setting way back when they were younger, but maybe it doesn't hold up to like in a, in a, in adult level analysis so that's kind of the idea of the thing in general but along the way we talk about plenty of things that are important for our salvation and a lot of things that you would hear in your typical catechesis but we're hopefully going to be looking at those ideas with with some new eyes at least that's kind of the the intention because that's kind of what i've experienced doing formal study of theology it's just something i want to share with other people so today we're going to be talking about god as an author the title of this one is about the author um, that's not in reference to me writing these little sessions. That's in reference to God himself. When I talk about God as an author, I'm actually returning to an analogy that we used way back last summer when we were, oddly enough, talking about eternity, and I suggested that God could be compared to the author of a book, that in the same way that the characters are kind of on a different timeline than the author, you would never look at the Chronicles of Narnia and say, oh, well, when does C.S. Lewis show up? There's a sense in which he never shows up, but there's also a sense in which he's always there. You know what I mean? Just he is not really in the Narnia timeline because the Narnia timeline is kind of in him, so to speak. So the analogy is that God is the author of the universe and the universe is sort of his creation. It's his book. It's his TV show. It's his movie. It's whatever you, whatever you want to think about it being. Um, and I think that this analogy is really helpful because it helps us to understand the sort of transcendence of God as well as the ways in which God is thoroughly distinct from us. Because a lot of times we sort of accidentally anthropomorphize God. We think of him as an old man in the clouds, right? Or, or whatever. Or we ascribe to him these sort of human characteristics or human attributes, which are well-meaning, but not always super accurate. In fact, the scriptures themselves say, you know, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are my thoughts above your thoughts, and, and that kind of thing. So today I wanted to explore the idea of God being this sort of author of creation and really digging into that idea as a way to help us to explore just what God is in a certain sense. Now God, the divine nature can't really be like nailed down. Um, maybe I should start out by saying that anything we say about God is ultimately analogous. Um, it's, we say these things about God by way of analogy because in truth, he goes far beyond anything that we can express in our own words. He goes far beyond anything that we could comprehend with our minds in fact there have been theologians who have suggested that god is beyond our concept of beyondness that's how insanely different he is than us god i want to say is a lot more abstract than people think it's true that he is a mind it's true that he is personal but a lot of times people think that immediately means that he thinks the same way that we do feels the same way that we do and that's just not entirely true okay so what does it mean to say that God is the author? A few things. First of all, that the universe exists by his choosing, basically. Uh, when you say that something ended up being published by this or that author, it's only because the author chose to make it so. What makes something real for the purposes of that work of fiction is the author's say-so. In fact, when we discuss different elements of fiction, oftentimes we talk about what's canonical and what's non-canonical. Usually that just means what's something that the author wrote and what's something that somebody else who wasn't the original author wrote. In the case of reality, you could think of anything that exists as sort of the canonical 
stuff. It's the stuff that the author actually willed to either deliberately choose to be a part of the universe or something that he deliberately allows to be a part of the universe because things get a little weird when you have things that can uh, possess causality and have free will and stuff like that. But that's a little besides the point. So basically the universe exists because God chooses for it to exist. The only reason you exist is because God chooses for you to exist. It is something that he wills. It's not the sense that he just kind of like makes something one day and then sets it aside and it just kind of sticks around. No, God has to choose each and every single moment of your existence. We mentioned last year that God creates kind of along the y-axis of creation, that if you think of time as like a timeline along the x-axis, God does not create at the beginning, and then things just kind of continue. He sort of creates from the bottom up. God in his eternal eternity actually kind of creates all of time from his perspective kind of at once which means that everything that is sort of published into creation, if you will, is something that he thought about, something that he intentionally allowed to happen or made happen or whatever it is, right? In fact, when you look at the language of the Old Testament, Genesis describes God creating the world as sort of speaking it into existence. God says, let there be light, and so it was. God said, you know, let the waters be divided between the waters above the dome and the waters below the dome, and so it was, right? It's by God's word, by God's thoughts, by God's deliberate action that these things come into being or, or I guess, take the shape that they take. In fact, there are some theologians that follow more kind of Platonist schools of thought, wherein they actually describe the entirety of the universe as kind of being within God's mind, almost as though the entire universe is... I don't want to say a dream that God is having, but it's a little bit more like that than maybe you might think. Basically that all that exists is something that sort of flows out of the mind of God, so to speak. Some theologians go pretty far with this um, and suggest that like your real realness is in God and you're just kind of this almost like echo of it, but I, I'm not going to go that far um, because I don't necessarily think that's particularly true. Um, but it gets interesting when you consider God as an author, when you get to the part where God interacts with the universe. Because normally, in a book, the author does not really interact with the story, because he's the author. He's the one telling the story. He's the one giving the story existence. The story exists, as it were, by his choice. But it's rare that the author actually, like, interacts with the characters, you know what I mean? But that is exactly what we find with God. What we find with God is that this whole universe is set up such that all of creation is actually meant to kind of be received back into God's um, personhood, almost. That creation is, in a certain sense, supposed to participate in the divine relationship of the members of the Trinity. And so we have this weird situation where the author creates this fictional world, so to speak, um, of his own choice and of his own volition, whatever he thinks, whatever he chooses is what becomes real, but there's this weird catch where that then has to be in a relationship with him. In what sense does an author have a relationship with his characters? Well, as their creator, sure, but the author that we have wants to go further than that. He wants to have a more personal relationship, a relationship in which we're actually aware of him. Now, curiously, the characters in the book might be able to surmise that they have an author, depending on how the book is written, depending on what kind of characters they are, depending on the rules of the setting and all that kind of stuff, the characters, depending on what kind of characters they are, might genuinely be able to 
look around them at their sort of fictional setting and determine, yeah, there's an author. But it would be a lot easier for the author to just break the fourth wall and tell them, <laughs> would it not? And that's actually what we find throughout what we refer to as historical revelation amongst theologians. So we kind of split revelation into these two broad categories. There's cosmic revelation, which is the revelation of the universe itself, and then there's historical revelation. Cosmic revelation is when people say, you know, that they kind of find God by looking at a beautiful mountainscape or a beautiful sunset, or they are able to, you know, look deep into the human heart, into the human soul, and determine, oh, there's, you know, there's God. Or they find God in other people, or they say, oh, look at the the beauty of nature or the kindness of those around us and you know you see god there right that's cosmic revelation basically everybody has access to that but when the author breaks the fourth wall that's what we call historical revelation that's the revelation to abraham that's the revelation to moses that's the revelation to david and to countless other people throughout history this sort of breaking the fourth wall is interesting According to our analogy, how would the author be able to actually break the fourth wall and communicate with his characters? Well, he would probably have to write something. He would have to write some scene in which the character has this weird experience where somehow they become aware of the creator in some way. Maybe you as the author trying to make contact with your creation write a scene in which they hear voices or they see visions that are otherwise unexplainable or maybe a thought is just sort of placed in the in their head because you the author just decide to write that thought there when you actually go back and you look at some of the accounts that's kind of what you find when people have visions or hear voices or receive inspirations from god it's basically the same thing some people wonder if god is so different and so transcendent and so outside of our normal day-to-day -day experience why don't visions of him feel like that well they kind of do but again for an author to interface with his characters, he would have to do so in a way that the characters were reachable. God does not reveal himself physically because God is physical, as some of the ancients believed, but because we're physical and God basically has to make that work. And so that's kind of what you find. In the scriptures, you find God appearing to various people. For instance, Moses in the burning bush. He, you know, is out tending these sheep and he has this weird experience of a bush that's on fire, but also it's not being burnt up. There's flames there, but the bush is still fine. And he hears this voice speaking to him saying, you know, Moses, Moses, right? Take off your sandals because the place you stand is holy ground and all that kind of stuff, right? These things are not face-to-face -face interactions with God. Even visions that people have where they see, you know, something incredible some vision of a heavenly throne with somebody whose appearance is like lightning sitting on it and that kind of stuff even these aren't technically the face of god weird as that is to say because again the characters in the book regardless of the vision that the author wrote for them wouldn't really be directly seeing the author you know what i mean in fact saint paul writes this in his letter to the corinthians the first one anyways where he says that presently we see dimly as in a mirror he suggests then in reference to the beatific vision in reference to heaven he says then we'll see god face to face but right now our knowledge is partial our prophecies are partial everything is this kind of dim murky shadowy version of the truth which is not to say that it's not true but it's not really all there is to it now i think it's fun because you then can think about what angels must think of god as and I'm sure they think of God completely differently than we do because they do experience the beatific vision and being non-physical things, more on that next week, 
being non-physical things, they don't have to think about God as an old man in the clouds because they don't have to think about his appearance. They don't have to think about the way his voice sounds. They don't have to think about his interactions with the physical world. So when angels experience God, it's not that they see visions or hear voices. Um, and it's wild to try to imagine what would an angel's conception of God be because I'm sure it's incredibly different than ours despite the fact that we're talking about the same thing. God is hilariously abstract, way more so than we give him credit for. Maybe it would be like a notion of capacities and potencies. Yeah. Like and an angel would probably be aware of its capabilities and aware of like its vastness or lack thereof or like what it can conceive of oh, yeah. simultaneously and then aware of God's different uh, maybe. More on the next week for sure because we'll, we'll talk about kind of different kinds of angels and some people suggest that some kinds of angels actually receive their knowledge of God like mediated through other angels that do behold God more fully or, or something like that. We'll, we'll get to that in good time. Now one of the things that I think is um, kind of fun about the idea of God being the author and, and the universe being like his book is that for all the fourth wall breaking he could do, giving the characters visions, writing them as hearing voices or having thoughts in their heads, wouldn't it be fun if he did what some authors do and just wrote a character that was basically just him? Wouldn't it be interesting if he just had like a character in the actual timeline of the book that was just the personification of the author in the form of the fictional character? I think it'd be interesting. It would be a lot easier for the characters to be able to interact with him in that way. And that's basically what the incarnation is. When Jesus Christ takes on human nature, it's basically like the author of the universe who, by his nature, could not be expressed in the language, if you will, of created reality, kind of does something that's about as close as you can get. He sort of writes himself a character. Now, um, we'll talk about the incarnation, I'm sure, in, in great detail another, another time. But I want to focus especially on this idea of God being um, the source of being. Did you have something to say? Yeah, you that's, just a big, that's, a, that's a big thing to try to say. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, I didn't get what you were trying to say. <laughs> so, like we mentioned, um, the characters in a fictional universe only exist basically because the author says so. Um, and there is a true sense in which the way that fictional characters exist is vastly different than the way that we exist, right? When we talk about Elmo, when we talk about Yoda, when we talk about whomever, right? We oftentimes talk about these fictional characters as though they're real in a sense, right? We have this sort of way of speaking in which we can differentiate the canonical story of this character versus the non-canonical story, right? What's the real Star Wars story or what's the real, you know, that kind of stuff. But if you were to push somebody, they would happily say that, okay, no, Elmo isn't real, but I am. Yoda isn't, like, real, but I am. We can say something similar when we compare Elmo to us as when we compare us to God. Not to say that we don't exist, but because there is a way that God exists that could almost be said to be that he is more real than we are. In the same way that you are more real than Elmo or Yoda, God is more real than you. Again, not to say that we don't exist in a true sense. This comparison is not to belittle our existence, but to extol God's existence. Okay, what does it mean to say that God is more real than we are? Because that's a very 
weird thing. Like, surely, well, you're either you're real or you're not, right? You exist or you don't, right? Almost. Almost. So, yes, it's true that you either exist or you don't, basically. Um, but a lot of Catholic theologians over the course of the centuries have made this distinction in kind of the way that a person exists and kind of the source of their existence, if you will. So the characters in the story take their existence from the author. They have to. There is no other way. They are the author's creations. If the author does not choose to say that they exist, they don't. If the author doesn't choose to write down their story, it doesn't exist. It never happened. So too, we only find our existence because God wills it, because God gives us existence. Fictional stories, in a certain sense, really only exist because we kind of decide they do. Or take, for instance, the value of a dollar bill. In what sense does, is that equivalent to however much gold? Really just because we all kind of decide it does. And that's kind of it. The value of a dollar has no value, no existence beyond that which we assign to it, that which we decide to make it so, so too with God. Obviously on a grander scale, the only way that we have existence, the only sense in which you are real is because God basically says you do. Because God is the creator, that makes it the case. So God, however, doesn't have to do that for himself. In the same way that you exist in a way that is not the same as the way that Elmo exists. If we all just decide we're just going to stop talking about Elmo, we're going to erase all records of Elmo, all the recordings of Sesame Street that have ever been produced, we just get rid of them all, Then and then we all just move on, never speak of him again, then in several generations, it would be accurate to say that, yeah, it's almost as though Elmo never existed, quote-unquote, right? Whereas for you and I... Right, for you and I, that's not quite how it works, right? Pres once Presumably, you live once, you, you, you live. That's a historical right. fact, you know? But also, if God's outside of time, then yeah. there's a permanent record, I guess. Yes. Even if no current yeah. humans... I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah, it's, it's definitely hard to wrap the head around, like, time as being, being a factor in that. Here's, here's maybe some language that'll, that'll help you out. Elmo's existence is far more contingent than ours is. Right. And... In the same way, our existence is also what we would call contingent. Contingent means that it basically doesn't have to exist, but it does. And it, it is the case, things. but it doesn't, and it relies on something to make it so. There's an old argument for God's existence called the argument from contingency, which basically says that if you look around the universe, what you find is basically nothing but contingent things. This microphone doesn't have to exist. I don't have to exist. I do, but I don't have to. There's a time in which I didn't. And if my parents never met, then I never would have. There's really nothing that you can observe with your eyes or hear with your ears that isn't contingent. It all depends on something prior to itself for its reality, for its existence, for its being. And you could go back and you could say, okay, well, I exist because my parents existed, and they existed because my grandparents existed, and on and on and on. You could go all the way back to the origins of the human race, the origins of life on Earth, let's say, for the sake of argument that it was, you know, some lightning strike hitting some weird clump of carbon somewhere in the ocean and just the right conditions were there to form something like a primeval virus or a primeval germ or cell or whatever. But even those things technically don't have to exist. 
So the argument goes that you can't do this forever, that the entire universe can't just rest on nothing, that that would be illogical. It'd be like saying that you have a whole chain of paper clips and no magnet at the top to hold them all together. <laughs> It'd be like saying that there's a whole series, an infinite regression of things that don't have to exist. The argument goes that if it's only things that don't have to exist, then nothing would have existed in the first place. There has to be there for something that exists that has to exist, that exists without needing to get its existence from something else, something that exists because of what it is, something that is necessarily existent. Aquinas and many others are going to say that that is God. Now, this argument doesn't prove that it's the Christian God or that it's necessarily something that we would call a personal God, but the argument goes so far as to suggest that there's some kind of being that doesn't just exist, it has to exist, or else nothing else would. Yep, I, thought, I haven't thought of it. If it's not sure. conversational format, I gotcha, can gotcha. hold it. Okay, why don't we save it for a little bit later, and we'll, we'll, we'll chat towards the end. So the idea is that that thing is God, that God has to exist. Um, some others are going to formulate it in the way of saying that God's definition includes his existence. That if you're not talking about a God that exists, you're not talking about God. It'd be almost like saying, like, oh, I'm going to propose to you a unicorn that by its nature doesn't have a single horn. You would say, well, that's, that's just not a unicorn. Yeah, that's just against the definition of a unicorn. You should be using a different word. Some theologians are going to say that if you are proposing a god whose existence is not necessary, you are misusing the word god. God has to exist, according to a lot of these arguments. Now, because god has to exist, um, that implies a lot of other things, and we could go into a lot of philosophy about how that would eventually imply, you know, eternity and infinity and all perfection, all that kind of stuff. But that's a little besides our purpose for now. I want to focus on this idea that God's existence is contained in his definition. So the idea is that for beings like us, contingent beings, what you are is separate from the fact that you exist, right? That you could conceive of a human being that didn't exist. Whereas for God, the idea is that what God is is equivalent to that God is. That what God is, is the same as the fact that he does exist. That the what of God is the same as the is of God. In the sort of technical Latin speak that Aquinas and Boethius used, they would say that his race is equivalent to his essay. Race means thing in Latin. So basically God's definition, his quiddity, his essence, if you will. And essay is the infinitive form of to be. Um, Aquinas uses it in a very technical sense to refer to, like, your existence. Um, it's a little more specific than that, but that'll do for our purposes here. So the idea is that God's race, his definition, is his existence. What God is, is that God is. Or, weirdly enough, when Moses is confronted with the burning bush... One of the questions he asks, because he has this long list of excuses as to why God should not send him on this mission. One of the earlier ones he uses is, but God, what if I go to the Hebrews and they ask me who sent me? What am I to tell them? And God says, tell them, I am who am. 
which I think is it's interesting that the philosophers of the Middle Ages were able to come up with basically the same description of God that God gave to Moses thousands of years earlier. I am that I am, or I am who am in different translations. It's a tricky phrase to translate for sure, but I had a moment when I was kind of going through all of this stuff in my metaphysics class where like I did have that moment of revelation of just like, oh wait, so what God is, is what God is? Or for me, it helped to, to write it out. I wrote the phrase, what is, with the what's all in capital letters. What is equals what is, with the is in capital letters. Or in other words, I am the fact that I exist. That's God, basically. Now, for the rest of us, it's not that way. We rely on God to supply us with existence, and that happens, as I mentioned, in each and every moment, that every moment of a character's existence in a story has to be given it by the author. If the author did not write it, effectively it doesn't exist. So the fact that you exist at any point in your story means that God chose to keep you existing at that point in your story. Um, which is interesting to think about. A lot of people think that God creates us, you know, when we're conceived in our mother's womb, and that's kind of the end, and we just kind of continue on from there. No. In order for you to have being at all, since you're contingent, you have to rely on God supplying you with existence constantly. Now, for God, this is no sweat, because he's eternal and omniscient and uh, omnipotent and all that good stuff. But it's interesting to think that, like, while you're sitting on the toilet doing your business... God is choosing to give you that moment. When you sit down to watch TV, God is choosing to keep you in that zone. He's choosing to keep you, like, existing at all. That if God were to stop thinking about you, if God were to stop and, and turn his attention elsewhere, which he can't really do because he's omniscient, but that's besides the point, you would effectively stop existing. People are like, oh, does God love people that don't exist? No. Because if God loved them, they would exist. And if they existed, then God would love them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those things that don't exist are effectively just non-canonical. The author didn't publish them in the story, as it were. Now, I want to continue on um, with some interesting implications to this. So a lot of times, the way that we understand God is a little restricted when we think of him in less than these terms. When we think of him as less than being what he is because God is not just a being amongst other beings he is being like we mentioned and that has some profound impacts on the way that we understand him again the reason I use the analogy of God as an author is because I think it's really helpful in this regard for instance God cannot lie some people say why not surely God knows all things he knows what's right and what's wrong would it really be that hard for him to just say what was wrong well, kind of, because it actually wouldn't make sense for God to say what was wrong. Remember, we're talking about the author of the story here. It's not that, like, in the rest of us, truth is when your words, your beliefs conform to reality. But that's not how it works for God. God's words do not have to conform to truth because truth conforms to God's words. Remember, he's the author. What he says is the story. If he were to say something that was a lie, it, it couldn't be. Because it's not that God's words don't match up to reality, because God's words are reality. In fact, we find this in the scriptures as well. As far back as Deuteronomy, 
God says, okay, we've provided manna for you in the desert and all that good stuff to convince you that it is not by bread alone that man lives, but by every word from the mouth of God. Or again, in Genesis, when God speaks the world into existence. Or when we say that the entire universe was created through Christ, the Logos in the Gospel of John. Logos literally translates to the word, or, or in some cases, the truth of God. If God were to say it, it would be true. In fact, when Jesus performs miracles, sometimes he kind of does this. Jesus does not have to go lay hands on a person to heal them. A lot of times he does, because he thinks it's interesting, engaging, helpful for us. But there's a moment, for instance, when a Roman centurion comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, my servant is all sick and stuff. Can you help me out here? And Jesus says, oh yeah, I'll come over. And the Roman centurion says, no, 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 I'm not worried that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my servant shall be healed. And Jesus says, okay, sounds great. And the Roman officer goes home and his servant is healed and he says, how long has he been well? And they say, well, about this long. And the Roman notices that it's been exactly that long since it's taken him to get back to his house from when Jesus said that. Or when a blind man comes up to Jesus and says, Master, I want to see you. Jesus basically just says, all right. Or when lepers come up to Jesus and say, by your word, I could be made clean. If you will it, I could be made clean. And Jesus says, I do will it. Be made clean. That's it. The reason God can't lie is not because... He's just, you know, particularly honest, but because he is the thing that defines reality. Similarly, with uh, moral goodness, people love to talk about, well, isn't God like kind of a bad dude? I mean, he orders people's executions and, you know, he kills people in the 10 plagues, especially the Passover and all that kind of stuff. And there are some things that there's a lot of conversations to be had there. We're going to stick with the philosophy for now. The reason that we say that God is good is not because God conforms to the standard of goodness better than anybody else. God is good because goodness is God. <laughs> because what's good is not this like arbitrary standard that God happens to live up to better than the rest of us. No, what's good is defined by what is like God. You could say that goodness is godliness, so to speak. To the extent that something is like God, it is good. So it's not that God is just better at following the rules than we are, or he's better at walking the walk and not just talking the talk, but rather that for something to be good is already what God is because it's sort of the causal relationships and the other way around. I'll give you this analogy. Let's say that there was um, a lookalike contest for a certain actor, right? Um, strangely, this is a real thing. I had no idea this was a real thing. This is a real thing. There are competitions where people are these sort of actor lookalikes or impersonators or whatever. If we were to assume in one of these com uh, competitions, perfectly just and perceptive judges for the competition, okay? They could most accurately, most correctly tell who really truly was the most lookalike to, let's say, Tom Cruise, right? If Tom Cruise were to enter the competition, he would win, right? He would have to. Why? Because he like, meets the standard of Tom Cruise-ness the best? No, because he is Tom Cruise. He is the standard. Everything else is trying to be like him. That's why we say that Tom Cruise is the most Tom Cruise looking. So when we say that God is the most good, when we say that God is good at all, when we say that God is perfect, 
It's not because he's doing something better than the rest of us. It's because he is that thing that we are all trying to be. Like, he, he's the reference for goodness, not the other way around. Again, the, the author of the story is the one that kind of the whole universe takes its, as its inspiration, if you will. And that's kind of how we can, we can think about God, I think, in a little more of a mature way. Because a lot of times people do. They, they go through their whole lives thinking that, like, oh, well, God's just the nicest. He's, I guess, just the most loving more accurate to say that no god is love it's so accurate to say that that the scriptures themselves say that (laughs) anyways that's basically all my thoughts on on this one um we can open it up for conversation if you guys like if you have thoughts questions do you all right i will i'll preface it by saying this do you guys want our conversation for going to be recorded and posted sure for the rest of the group did you post did you post them before i don't remember no, previously last year it was just I would say stuff and then um, I would usually close the recording and then we would chat. So unless you guys want to be on record, you could or is there, my maybe 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 the other question is: Do you think? Oh, I mean, you can do that too. Yeah. Do you think that there are any questions that you have which would help? other people i'm sure i'm sure it'd be good we'll just we'll keep it we'll keep it rolling we'll keep it rolling if people are interested they're interested all right sounds good and i can say um uh, your name (laughs) i've been believing in god for uh 24 years now all right the um a lot of the um Aquinan, I don't know, arguments Thomistic. for God, yeah. Thomistic, that, that, that have a, they, they present a series and then they show why it is impossible for the series to be infinite and why there needs to be yeah. a beginning and why there needs to be something that transcends the, the rules of that series. They always felt like hard for me to, um, to grasp not why they indicated a creator, but why they indicated God as we attributed yeah. the divine attributes to him because it seemed to locate him at a start mm-hmm. and then have everything else just be successive sub-creations. And it made everything else feel so, like infinitely distant from God. That the mm. present could not be farther from God yeah. than that's as far as you could possibly be from God. Because God is way back at the beginning yeah. of things. And it just made me think like like a series of dominoes that I push a domino and then I have no control now. I yeah. am the creation of those dominoes. The dominoes have no power to initiate themselves. They need the, the like untipped mover to, right, to be the yeah, one to start it yeah. but at that point it is out of my hands and i'm not the god sure. of those dominoes i am i could even instigate something like that by accident yeah which is why like i kind of i know this probably maps to some Thomistic thing but i was thinking about how it's easy for me when especially in terms of contingency a lot of people think of like um could you conceive of the world without it right then mm-hmm. if you can then it's contingent yeah. but it made me think of like I, I i thought of it as like does it exist within a substrate like, is there, if I showed you, here's the thing. Yeah. Could I show it to you without a box? Right. And for, if I can't show you a fish without holding some water, otherwise I'm showing you a dead, a corpse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is not a fish. Like, I, it needs the box for me to show you. And everything else works that way. I can't be like, here's some data. I have to be holding a hard drive in my hand or something. Right. It does not exist if not in a thing. I can't say, here's a thought. I have to translate it into a word yeah. or you have to be in my mind. Like I can't hold it without the box right. because it, it, it cannot be 
It is reliant on that box. Mm -hmm. And I can't show you literally anything without a bit of time and some space. Like there is no, there would be nothing, right? If it exists for no time and it takes up no space, it is not, you know? Sure. And so God is the box, right? That like- In a certain sense. Yeah. Right, that like, which makes it clear that, um, that even as those dominoes progress, like they're still within yeah. him in that sense, which makes it, makes it be like, <clears throat> And it made me think, like, I was trying to map it back to, because I like the, the, the author of the story analogy a lot of characters and the writer and how, like, if the writer just took a break from writing, time does not progress. Like, it, everything right. is yeah. frozen until more creation is done. But it made me think of, about that. It's almost like a story that isn't written down. It's just thinking about it. Yeah. And so, like, yeah, like you could just yes. think of some characters and you're thinking about it, and you could take a break from thinking about it, and it, it's just waiting for you. Like, yep. nothing progresses in your, because how could it? It's your thoughts. Which is why when people say we're in the mind of God, I was like, in what sense? And yeah. how mind like that really made it click for me that we're literally in the mind of God. Like if I'm imagining some characters, I am as God to them. Yes. Like they could act freely. I can imagine, I can ascribe to them qualities and think of like, what would a really persnickety character do there? Yeah. And, and that's what a lot of authors say. only doing so yeah. through my thinking of, you know, and um, yeah, just like being in my mind. Also for your own usage, uh, right. the dramaturgical term for a character in a piece of fiction, like in literary analysis, uh -huh. that is basically there as a mouthpiece from the author is yes. called a raisonneur. Okay. Which is like a French term. I might have to is... see that spelled out, but yeah. That's how to spell it. Okay, a raisonneur. Yes. So it's um, like if a character starts making a political yes. statement and it's like yeah. that's the author's opinions and they're basically using this character as a yeah. way to like speak it like in some French So how place. the incarnation differs from that, that's actually closer to what I would call inspiration. Whereas the incarnation is like, basically like it's a complete self-insert where yeah. God, like the author is just like, I want a character that's just me. And like anything that happens in the story is just gonna be like, what would I do? And the character is just gonna do that. That's a little bit more how the, the incarnation work. Because like it, it is true to say that the human person of Jesus Christ is God. Like, it's not like he's the, you know, this vision of God or he's this sort of, you know, video game avatar of God. Like, th this is where the analogy starts to break down a little bit. Um, but there is a true sense in which Jesus is not just, like, uh, yeah. write-in for God's ideas, but, like, God really is, like, role-playing as a human, if you will. Yeah, that's the part where it definitely breaks down. Yeah. Because it's like, oh, could yeah. I do the incarnation, like, with my own thoughts? Could I just think a thought... Yeah. I just imagine myself and then I'm but in what sense like I have not become thought like right. in that like I'm I'm still just pretending and then especially the part where it's like the human aspect of Jesus is him and functions under the same rules like really boggles my mind because it's very easy to think like sure yeah. God cannot lie like start for this the yeah. substrate cannot lie to itself because right. it would just be changing the rules of reality but it's easy to imagine that Jesus could you know yeah, choose it to been, not reveal something it to been someone or Physically, it would have been like physically possible for but his body to, to do so. Like he, he, but only yeah. by his will. It's sort of like saying evil. that God cannot sin, for instance, because sin is definitively that which God would never do, that which runs contrary to the but will Jesus of God. Jesus could have, like, well, if he so can't sin, thing, like, he be his, pious. His like, his physical body would have been capable of of going through those motions, but like. Because his will is in perfect conformity to the divine will. He also had a human yeah. soul, yeah. And a human oh, yeah. will. Oh, and his yeah. human will could be tempted in a real sense. Yes. And if and if oh, it yes. was, and if there was no possibility oh, to yeah. err, like 
metaphysically, then it seems right. like a farce in some sense. Yeah. Like, do you guys think like four-year-old Jesus could have told a lie like before the age of reason, or do you think that's like out of the question? I mean, they found him in the temple like preaching. So. <laughs> Do, right. do you think, do you think real? Well, yes, do you think four-year-olds? <laughs> do you think any four-year-old can tell a lie? You know, I guess. Do you think it was? I mean, are that's they, for, are they capable of making like point. real right. choices? Yeah. Because if yeah. we're gonna say that yeah. like the four-year-old's capable of real choices, then I would say then no, Jesus, four-year-old Jesus would not have deliberately sure done something, something that would incorrect. be incorrect. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But he could have mispronounced somebody's name. Right. You know that kind of thing. Interesting. Yeah. He didn't necessarily have, like, uh, or at least his human form, I imagine, wouldn't have, like, mm -hmm. perfect memory at all times, right. for example. Right, right. Yeah, like, um, we'll, we'll talk about the humanity of Christ a little bit later on this summer, because there are some, some fascinating little bits and pieces throughout the scriptures about that. But yeah, but sin is just like, it'd be like saying, like, oh, imagine if God did this thing that God would never do. It's mm -hmm. like, well, that's self-defeating, you know what I mean? If God would do it, it wouldn't be... A sin. Yeah. You know, a lot of times either he wouldn't be God, God or it would, wouldn't be a sin. About Jesus, yeah. Yeah. like in one sense, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like, oh, no. yeah. What sense does God do? Does like you could say that, like every time anyone tells a lie, mm -hmm. that's as close as we get to God lying because yeah. he only sub like acts through a medium. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think so. what would it even mean for God to directly tell a lie? Like a voice in the sky is saying a lie, yeah. then like, that he's just kind of making the air lie. Like right. when God directly yeah, yeah, like yeah. acts, it's just through matter. You know what I'm saying? Like, At least as far as when it's like a more obvious communication. Right. To so us, I, yeah. I think the yeah. thing that I think a lot of, um, especially when people have questions about God, mm -hmm. the fundamental confusion is like, who are we and who is God? Because yeah. we ascribe things to God that should rightly be ascribed to us. Mm -hmm. We ascribe things to us that are only present in God. And the distinction of wh what what is different about us and God is like really blurry in the pub public consciousness. Yeah. Oh, a lot. Yeah. Like God is always like some some person. You know, or like yeah. he's 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 located in the universe somewhere, like you said, or the sky the, fairy is how right. some critics describe him. Because. And there are people; those are accurate thoughts to have about people. Yeah, you know what I'm oh, saying? Yeah. Like, and yeah. So if like if a person is doing evil to you, a lot of times people would ascribe that to God. Like, why did God do this, or God let this mm -hmm. happen? When I feel like the buck stops there in some ways. Yeah. Like, do you remember that, our conversation? That on there's another mind. Secondary causality. Yes. Back in last summer, yeah, because I think that's kind of what you're hitting on a little bit. Do you have a thought? Uh, like you were just making me think of the. I was gonna be like, oh, dude, this. I feel like it brings me back to like uh, Trinity, how crazy the Trinity yeah. is. Because now I was saying it's like, oh, so like God would be outside of time, but would be inside of time as Jesus at the same time. Yeah, simultaneously. Because they're both going on at the same time, mm -hmm. like just the weird yeah. stuff of like, yeah, just. Yeah, and that's why some people, when they describe the, the incarnation, they say that, you know, like, not only that, like, God became man, some theologians go so far as to say, like, oh, God entered time. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, at that but point. But at the same yeah. time, it would have been Well, in, in his eternity. So his divine yes. essence, yeah. yes, would still be in the eternal now, whereas his human body and his human soul, yes, would have been going through time the yeah. same way that the well, rest Well, just of like the thing of like, you know, yeah. they would they would be completely separate but also still completely one. Like the whole trip. Yes. Thing. That's where I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then we gotcha. get, and then we lose our mind. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and right. then now we yeah, can yeah. understand. 
but right, but I think that the at least for me the the analogy of the author kind of helps because we oh, have yeah, the idea no, of like oh well if there was a character in the story that was just like the incarnation of the author you know what I mean it makes sense as to be why like how like Jesus's humanity is in a sense distinct from his divinity but also they're the same person you know what I mean yeah. that, I like dreamer kind of instead of author because sure, it really yeah. happens in what we're, we're just we're thoughts like, yeah, just, there, yeah there are like, some it's not like he's writing that, us down to do substrate it like that, it's like yeah. I could write down a story and then like forget it. Like, right. because I put it on a book. Yeah, it didn't exist outside but, of it. Yeah, but also, like, like, completely physical, though, embodied thoughts. Right, like, but, but, but the matter doesn't like, he's exist. He's also imagining the matter. Like, yeah, God has saying? to like, also communicate existence to the matter, like, that we're made out of as well. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think, I think yeah. it's more because if he is incarnate, he became physical yeah. as well. Oh, yeah. So but, like, physical isn't something, like, outside of God. Like, mm-hmm. he's still yeah. sustaining the dirt in being in every piece of matter just as much as us. You know what I'm saying? So it doesn't feel like because we talk about levels of existence as like manifestations. When, when we talk about like how is real is Elmo versus mm-hmm. us, right? Uh, we're just more manifested than Elmo. Like Elmo is just a name and like a conception of what could be, but there he doesn't have a body. He doesn't have like a single personhood because he's not manifested in that in that way. Right. But if he was, you would have to be like, okay, I guess Elmo's real. I found his manifestation somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if like some kids have a lemonade stand, you're like, oh, they don't really have a business. But then yeah. you started tributing enough quality, like, oh, they made a logo. Oh, they registered with the FTC. Oh, they're exchanging yeah, yeah, their product yeah. for legal time. I guess their business is real now because they manifested enough things that we can call it that. You know? Mm-hmm. But at some point, even if someone just said, what if blah, 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 like, it, does, it, it exists at least as a thought. Like, things exist at least as notions. Mm-hmm. So everything had, that we could even think to speak of has some form of existence but all of that still is within the substrate of god that we can't like have yeah. something like so thin and ephemeral that it like escapes that box somehow it doesn't need that anymore the Whereas, idea of like, god being like the dreamer and creation is the dream is interesting too because there have been um some either gnostic or atheists um either scientists or philosophers that have suggested like they've taken a good long look at the universe and been like it's almost as though the universe exists within some kind of grand mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, oddly enough, the I kind of wonder if some of the hypothesization about, like, are we a simulation? I kind of wonder if we're taking, like, a weird philosophical backdoor to the idea of, of God yeah. as the creator. You know what I mean? That kind of people stuff. say, like, there must be substrate behind all this. Yeah. Like, there, this, this must be, like, running on something. The one reason I don't you typically use the word dreamer or, like, that creation is like a dream that god dreams like the unconscious or the well that's not the reason i don't use it the reason i don't use it is because i think it too heavily blurs the distinction between god and creation that is all because like a dream properly speaking is just like basically your brain firing off stuff within itself you know what i mean and it's just like an experience that you are having whereas it is true to say that the universe is distinct from god is separate from god yes it does not exist without God's, like, willing it to exist. But it's true to say that, like, you are not God and this table is not God. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. And now the phraseology of, like, God as the dreamer doesn't necessitate that. But at least in my mind, it kind of, like, implies that. Just beings. What do you mean? You know, it's like, like, I understand that, like, those with a will, they can act independently and mm-hmm. they're not God. But in some senses, is the dirt God? Is the sky God? Like, it's just the... The substrate that he's, you know. Yeah, no, we would say that's a, a distinct creation. A distinct same, creation. same thing as. But other would we? So would the terminology things. be like the yeah. sky is a part of God, no. or that the like the sky 
sky is God's creation. Yeah. Um, like, so it what? doesn't it doesn't exist without God, but it would be improper to say that it was God. So can God have thoughts as we have thoughts, or so is perfect. that necessarily creation? Because like we have thoughts, and yeah. the, the thoughts are not distinct from us. I, it's, they're just my. It's just a part of me. It, and if you right, locate yeah. the thoughts, presumably, I mean, who knows if this is actually how it works? But yeah, presumably, yeah. any thought can be mapped to some actual movement of electrons in your brain. Right. Yeah. If if it even works that way, like who knows if we have purely immaterial thoughts, or maybe we right. do once we don't have a body. But right, right. like my thoughts, they don't have an existence unto their own. It's just me puppeting them. You mm-hmm. know. Whereas we we're saying that there's a hard break that God is not puppeting he's holding it in being but he's not like puppeting everything at all times like there is a true existence so, yeah, that's, where, that's where i kind, kind of, of like yeah. i'm having a hard time with the office sure. because then where does free will come into play yeah, yeah that's so what that's, i was about to say we are that's separate me, that was the, yes. that was my question that for me is like for me that is like the big shortcoming yeah. of the author analogy okay. is okay. that yeah. in okay. in a true <laughs> that like that's where like Thank you. <laughs> the reason the reason it's important to clarify that like we only speak of God in analogies is because every single analogy like it communicates what it's trying to communicate well, but usually anything else it's kind of like you know what I mean? Because for instance, yeah, I mean even yeah. talking to my you know seventh grade students about different parables that Jesus uses, you know what I mean? Every once in a while in class we will be having a discussion about it, and they'll be like, okay, so if you know Jesus is like the the vine and we're like the branches what's like the root and what's like the rain and stuff like that i'm like that's just that's just not yeah it's just like that's like the parable doesn't go that far it like it's it's specifically to communicate this one specific idea it's not exhaustive so the idea of god as the author and us as creation is mainly to communicate a certain set of ideas that i think are really helpful but it does not account for free will not even close but yeah, because it makes it sound like the predestined kind of... Yeah, thing. yeah. Did we talk about free will last summer? Uh, we talked about free will a little bit when we talked about secondary causality, yeah. I think, and maybe if it Go probably came up. Maybe, maybe. What questions do you have, Mary? What do you want to talk about? No, I'm going to go rewatch this. Okay. But, uh, I think, yeah, part of it was just like, I, I think Teresa kind of said it, just like, yeah, yeah, so like, why, like, if we're being held in suspension by, like, God, like, how come certain things, like, happen? Yeah, it's because God lets them happen. I, I, the, the way that I think about that, which is largely helped and informed by reading yeah. um, C, C.S. Lewis's uh, The Problem of Pain, where he's basically yeah, talking about, because all these ideas are nested, right? Yeah. And it's oh, yeah. probably the, I think the, at least for the modern age, you go through eras, like maybe some other era or like medieval philosophers, like it just wasn't a huge concern. It was just taken as a given. Sure. You know, of like, that evil could exist and that wasn't but like the modern age is very preoccupied with the idea of free will and the idea of of pain and suffering you know both natural and and caused by human agents and like why that exists with god but this book is so good at at least at least to me like it addressed everything i was thinking about but it's because um i think it's the the what he's actually creating and holding into being it's like i want to think about not just a person and oh no that person's doing bad things or I want to think about, you know, just just some matter. But he's trying to create a relationship. He's like, I'm 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 creating, like immaterial goods. Like I'm mm-hmm. creating love. I'm creating generosity. And those things are meaningless. Like that they're, like a robot like putting some boxes in a conveyor belt is not generosity. Right. That's not like in like deep in the idea of generosity is like 
and gift, the notion of like mm-hmm. giving and, and like free will and all that kind of stuff. And like for that to be created, the substrate that that idea needs to exist in. If I give you a box and say, this is generosity, or like this is the notion of generosity in this box, the thing that is surrounding it has to be free will. Yeah. Like there, otherwise it doesn't exist. It's like a fish out of water. Like free will, or sorry, not free will, but generosity, love, like all these moral goods. They require. They require free choice. will. It's like yeah. it's like as water to a fish. Like they 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 aren't anything yeah, outside free will of that. Is baked in. Yeah. So he's like, I'll yeah. create free will because there's some really awesome stuff I want to create, and this is the box yeah. that it needs. Like otherwise, it it's it's not. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. And that makes it, and and that makes it this like noble thing to me that he thought it was worth it. Mm-hmm. That there are some like powerful, beautiful, like heartrending, or even just the nature of beauty itself. That something could have been otherwise, yeah. and all of this stuff. That he's like, it is worth it to create the world this way, like for the sake of, you know, these things. Like and and, and yeah, which because. Take me a minute to digest that, but I like what you said. Yeah, <laughs> and like the C.S. Lewis does it better, but yeah, that's fair. That's but fair. that was like my takeaway from it is like yeah. certain things where like, oh, I have this notion of this thing, and I want to have my cake and eat it too, like because I I also think having a child helps with this a bit because sometimes mm. like a child expresses something that you want to communicate them like that's an impossibility. Like I see your desire for this good and that good, but they they cannot exist in the same place at the same time. Like I want <laughs> banana, but I want my banana to be cake. I'm sorry. I just bananas aren't cake. I can't. I cannot possibly I give you that. Banana in the peel, but also out of the peel. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like sometimes, like, like no there's pain in growth. wishing for that, That's which doesn't make sense. Yeah. But eventually, like, yeah. you come to the point where those things, like, it's not a concern once you realize that you're thinking about right. uh, not a thing. Then right. someone's like, I want the universe as it is with no suffering. It's like, then there's, it's it's going to be so different than you're mm-hmm. thinking, yeah. and all the goods that any universe you could possibly desire because you're made to desire real goods would not have those goods they only exist in a universe that is as this one is like or at least with the same rules in place yeah you know what i'm saying speaking of rules so i i had planned to talk about this totally forgot about it um i want to touch briefly on miracles that's (laughs) that's cool with y'all Sure. Okay. Why are you looking at me? I look around the audience when I talk. What can I say? Um, So the idea of miracles fits into this basically in that for God, a miracle is the same as normal creation. Um, When God, for instance, is in our author analogy sitting down to write a scene, you know what I mean? He can write whatever he wants, and for him, it's just him writing whatever happens, right? But where miracles come in is basically when God does something that's outside of our ordinary experience, that God kind of sets down these sort of certain expectations, these certain rules, routines, laws of nature, if you want to call them that, et cetera, et cetera, that normally we adhere to, but God doesn't always adhere to those things because he's above those things. Um, Some people kind of wonder, okay, well, why doesn't God just like bake those desires into the universe if god was just going to do this miraculous stuff why didn't he just make the universe that way in the first place a few thoughts firstly he did for the most part Um, in fact when you consider the creation of mankind mankind was always meant for something higher than nature Uh, mankind was actually from the get-go built to be like the experiencer of a miracle to be on the receiving end of a miracle and we talk about holiness, when we talk about grace, when we talk about divinization, we are talking about the supernatural, something above and beyond the laws of nature affecting what goes on here below. 
we were always made for that. It's not a part of what we are because by nature we are, you know, natural and stuff, but we're like a cup that's made to receive water. We're made from the get-go to receive something outside of ourselves. So there is a true sense in which God did build the universe in such a way that it anticipated miracles happening. One miracle in particular, which is, you know, the restoration of man to God and divinization of the human soul and all that good stuff, but more on that later. But other historical miracles, the feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, all that kind of stuff, right? For God, they're no big deal, right? Like, if you are the author of a book, you can write whatever you want, you know what I mean? And the only thing that's really stopping you is, like, how will the characters in my fiction receive this? <laughs> and that's mainly when God actually uses miracles in the first place. It's normally for the benefit of somebody else, either for their well-being or for especially their belief and their, um, I guess you could say, their understanding of God. When Moses has all this long list of excuses for God as to why he shouldn't send Moses on this journey to rescue the Israelites from slavery, among the things that God says for him, he's like, all right, Moses, what do you got in your hand? And he's like, I got a staff. God's like, great, throw it on the ground, it becomes a snake. He says, okay, great, pick it up again. All right, how about now? We good now? <laughs> and he's like, all right, try this. Open your tunic, put your hand inside. Moses does so, and he's like, okay, now take it out. Takes it out, and it's all like diseased and stuff. And God's like, okay, now put it back. And he's like, puts it back. <laughs> take it out, and it's fine, right? And he says, all right, I've given you two like above nature signs that you can use to convince the people or to convince the Pharaoh that who they are dealing with really truly is the man in charge. A lot of times these miracles, even the miracles of the 10 plagues are in a certain sense kind of designed to communicate God to the people. That like if they're in the situation where God is breaking the fourth wall and talking to these people and there is for some reason this sense of like the only way these people are going to go with this is if they're really convinced that they are speaking with the author do something that only the author can do which is basically go against all the other rules of the universe go against all the normal stuff some people think okay but if god is consistent why would he ever break the, the rules of the universe it's not that he's breaking them which I know sounds weird. There are some weird naturalistic explanations where it's like, oh, well, you know, the, the sky darkening at the crucifixion is just a conveniently timed solar eclipse or, you know, whatever, right? There are other miracles that, like, there's no possible way you can explain this one away, but luckily we don't have to. So God performing a miracle, doing something that suspends the normal flow of, of the material universe um, is kind of like, oddly enough, what I tend to do in the classroom sometimes, where in school we have routines, we have sometimes too many routines, I think, but a lot of times we have to have these routines in order for school to do what it needs to do, in order for school to be effective, to be stable, to be safe, to be predictable, there has to be a certain sense of uh, structure, stability, uh, a sense in which the students can anticipate what's gonna happen next. But every once in a while, for some special purpose, I gotta say, kids, we're doing something different today. And it may be the case that's like, but Mr. Wynn, we always do it this way. And sometimes they have to be like, but today we're not. Today we have a higher purpose than just maintaining the status quo. Today we have something else. And it is completely within my authority to do so. Or on a somewhat larger level, if the principal were to say, were to say okay, classes this afternoon, 
We're not having them. We're all having an emergency assembly to address something. I don't know. I don't know what it is. It is completely within the principal's authority to do so. She is not actually breaking the schedule. This is technically something that is kind of built into the way the schedule works in the first place, that the principal can do this kind of thing. So even though it disrupts the normal flow of the school day, even though it completely goes against what your average student is expecting to happen on that day, because there is some higher purpose at work, it checks out. I guess the bottom line is you can't break reality. Like the fact that yeah. miracles are in reality means part of reality yes and part of reality is that sometimes sometimes god does sometimes does god has to things. do stuff yeah. yeah sometimes god has to say kids today we're doing something different this <laughs> miracle is basically i'm my mind's thinking about the the substrate thing and sure. just like that the nature of things is partially contingent on that which surrounds them and that which upholds yeah. them like boggles my mind in just the nature of death and like if it's exiting a substrate somehow, because I understand, like, even the fact of, like, part of my being is being in a body, part of my being is right. being in time. Remove me from the body, I'm like, okay, wait, it's really hard for me to conceive of that because yeah. do I have a location anymore? How do I distinguish yeah. between myself and the other? How, how do I not just feel like the entire universe is me and that's yeah. a falsehood? But then pull me out of time, and my conception <laughs> of all things comes screaming as you shred that which is me. Like, I'm yeah, just yeah. like, you know, and people are like, oh, that's heaven. We're going to be outside of time. And they say it so pleasantly. And I'm like, yeah. ah! Right. And that's why, and that's why it's, it's right true, yeah. true eternity belongs to God alone. Yeah. And um, I'm like, yeah. please make it not yeah. so. Like, St. Thomas and, just like and a others. a different, more perfected box. I'm good with yeah. that. You know, yeah. Like, I think yeah, that's you, a you little more. Because I feel like if your entire human existence did, becomes yeah. vestigial and then the rest of eternity is like that, that would seem. You'll <laughs> see. It's like. No, that's why. Why that's do I have like a mouth anymore the, that I can telepathically think and don't need to eat? That seems that's like. That's one a, of like the over, weird. You know. The weird, like, misunderstood things is that the resurrection of the body is like a pretty big deal as far as heavenly life. That heavenly life is incomplete without the body. Right. That, and that's like, like an incarnate nature. E right. Like, heaven. even Christ himself described the dead as being asleep. He described right. them as being alive, very much so. But even he described them as being asleep. This is another you thing that I mean? my boy C.S. Lewis helped me out yeah, with. Yeah. He said, if there are pains in heaven, like, would that I could feel them all the more. And if there are pleasures in hell, like, keep me ever distant from them. Like, just this idea that you could stub your toe in heaven, but you would understand the full, like, moral, like, context of that thing. And, like, sure, it wouldn't yeah. cause you, like, sinful like raging against the world like right. but it's still possible for one object to collide against another yeah, yeah, yeah. it just would not be seen as like a inconvenience and like yeah. a, you know some sense that would distance you from god in that moment like Jeez, you're gonna love you could still like talk about angels tire <laughs> as you like because you know, angels are like that i mean if you're perfect in heaven you're probably never gonna stub your toe because you're not a cleft right. anymore but like, but but you're still yeah. human, you know what I'm saying? So it's not like but it's not like you will be like this robot that like now you know I'm like, saying like yeah. and it could yeah. still you're, you're yeah. completely yourself. But 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 yeah. the, the notion of pain and like really deeply thinking about what pain means could still operate in heaven, especially in its 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 connection to a virtue that you could still evince real charity in heaven, and that part of the box of charity is pain. It's inconveniencing yourself for the. For the sake of the others, you know what I'm saying? Like you can let someone go first in. What? You know what I'm saying? Are we going like, to grow in virtue in heaven, or are we going to be like at our max? Basically, we got so all the virtue. Right? So there's like a handful of different um, approaches to this over the course of the centuries. So there are some who suggest that there are different sort of degrees of virtuousness, perfection among the souls in heaven. Right. And 
that they don't necessarily grow, but that everybody kind of, again, being as close to eternity as a created being can get, that's kind of what life in heaven is like. There are some who suggest that, like the angels, there are just going to be some souls that are just like holier than others. Right. Um, and that that's not necessarily going to be like a dynamic, ongoing kind of thing yeah, that's in flux. I've heard that before. I just wasn't yeah. sure if like those levels of holiness, so to speak, right. like, change once you're in heaven. Yeah. I didn't think that was Because that would be level 99. Well, right. But like, it's, you take, for instance, you know, the Blessed Mother, right? Mm-hmm. There's a reason that she is venerated yeah. as you know, higher than the other saints, right. right? The queen of saints, the the prime Christian, if you will. Like, there is a true sense in which she is, yeah, like, more virtuous than any other human there save Christ. You know what I mean? But, like, I feel like in right. heaven, I, I my, my moral, spiritual instinct that I don't know how to back up, but it seems consistent yeah. with reality that Christ would have the stigmata. You know what I'm saying? That he would oh, have yeah. wounds. Yeah. So like, it's like heaven is this like polished up thing where there's yeah. no blood, no one ever stubs their toe. Nothing yeah, is ever, yeah. nothing yeah. is ever like soiled or dirty in heaven. Like, like it's hard for me to conceive of what that would even look like. You know what I'm saying? That that you could never like trip. Like I understand that like that it's this moral perfection, but that if we're gonna say that it's an incarnate reality at all, mm-hmm. then there has to be pain. You know what I'm saying? Like because the simple fact yeah. that two things could collide. You know what I'm saying? Like, so it's but good. but it's how it, the context is everything. Like, what does that mean? Yeah. What is the meaning of this? Because things can collide, and that's not pain. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, not, we might yeah. do that on purpose, like for something. But but it's it's entirely like, does it inconvenience you? Yeah. Did you wish it were not so? Yeah. So you this clap your hands. I'm, I'm you know? just thinking that like Jesus having the stigmata is like wounds, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's still pain there. You know? But like, the yeah. meaning chose, of those wounds is love. He's like, yeah. I chose to do something immensely inconvenient to me that terminated my life prematurely so that you would have a good yeah. you know what I'm saying like I feel like that thing that's there is gonna yeah. be everywhere in heaven yeah. you know that I will sacrifice for you you know like I'm yeah, yeah. and I'm just trying like, to imagine like how yeah. that would exist so this like so this that. so this taps into a few things so one the stigmata being part of Christ's glorified body totally a thing yeah. Um, after the resurrection, he shows up. He's like, "Hey, Thomas, yeah. check yeah. it out." Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> I've heard, I've heard hypothesization that like the reason that Jesus's wounds remain even after glorification are precisely because they are like almost in a certain sense part of his identity. That like the way that his glorified body expresses who he is, like that is such a central part of like who he is and how he interfaces with every other human being mm-hmm. that like that would of course be part of his appearance you know what I mean yeah. that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um, there is an, a different very different hypothesis about what Adam and Eve experienced um, pre-lapsarian uh, meaning like before the fall mm-hmm. where some people suggest that the body was in such harmony that with the soul um, because the soul is kind of in charge of the body in humans and that kind of stuff that the body could not be damaged or harmed by things that the soul did not allow, basically. So there are some people that suggest that if Adam or Eve, pre-fall, were to like trip and stumble into a thorn bush, that they would not get scratched or pierced because like their soul was in such command, like such intense command of their body that nothing else could like intrude upon their bodily integrity if their soul did not will it. 
Um, yeah. So some people would suggest that there is something similar in heaven, that there is, in theory, the capacity for pain, but there would never... they were masters of right, the world. In some right, sense. But, there would never, blundering, but there would never be... Yeah. happening to them. But there would never be, like, the practical occasion as we are. You know what I mean? That yeah. kind of thing. Oh, tell me about it. But, hmm. but that's one of those we'll see when we get there kind of things, yeah. I think. Yeah. But... But it is interesting thing. But I, I just that, that speaks that helps me like feel like oh I get it like in a yeah. way that is like better for me morally. Right. When I think like someone like in heaven could have like a scar of childbirth yeah. or something oh, yeah. that like yeah. that is like a, something that is a symbol of love or that like evinces yeah. something that they might be for someone else's sake. Whereas like oh, in hell yeah. is all Instagram filtered. Everything is like, like you look the way you want to look. That is bad for you. Sure. You look the sure, way that sure, you sure. are not. You are sure. even just glancing at someone. You are just seeing a lie. Like mm-hmm. they don't even have to speak, and they're already lying to you. Whereas in heaven, it's like real and it's raw, and you're seeing things that were like struggle to see as beautiful because our idea of beauty is so warped. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. But how old will we be? <laughs> that one is also there's like different ideas across different theologians and, and different time yeah, periods and things like that there are some that suggest that it's like whatever age you were the holiest on earth um, there are some that suggest that everybody is a sort of vaguely like physical prime kind of you know yeah, 20, you 20s complete, 30s ish yeah, 20s, 20s 30s ish kind of thing um, there are <laughs> some theologians that fall under like a in my mind like a weird kind of like I, I feel like I know your type, um, where they suggest that all the dudes are the same age that Jesus was at the crucifixion, and all the ladies are the same age that Mary was at the fiat, which I think is, like, I'm like, mm-hmm, okay, all right. <laughs> I'll talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I know. Yeah. I know. Um, she, like, 14 or something? 14, 15-ish, yeah. that kind of thing. Oh, so wait, I... Oh, 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 <laughs> what? Oh, He's 33. And that's, that's the thing, like, he, but he came back as a 33 year old. Like, he yeah. came back about what he was. Yeah. So, in my mind, it's most logical that I, my glorified body is the body that I died in. Yeah, some, yeah, and some people suggest that as well. But, I mean, some people suggest that as well, yeah. Flying. But there needs well, to be sure. some I'm element. Not, you know, so, let's, let's, let's tease that apart. There needs to be some element of reconstitution for you to have a body at all. Because, say yeah. that you die by explosion. Right, the body that you died in, or even maybe that you died the time that your a few hundred died, years before yeah, the eschaton. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> or someone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You'll, you d- you are... start decaying. What, Mary? How long does it take the body to start decaying? Minutes. I mean, like, yeah, you start to notice changes within like an hour, hour and a half. Yeah, for sure. Nice. What I'm saying is like, <laughs> I I would say that reconstitution, like the the process of damage, and then death happens at like an arbitrary point in there when enough systems are damaged. You know what I'm saying? Like, so you could start chopping someone up or put them in acid, and their body would already be quite damaged, and then they would die, right? So if this reconstitution is irrelevant of the point of death, then we could say that aging could technically be a part yeah. of that. And also, as like you're naturally repaired. So you're kind of repaired back yeah. to your fullest functioning, yeah. which I guess physically could, or visually anyway, could put you back to, because it's all visual. I mean. You'll, yeah. When you die, you're, it's like your age is removed. Like right. you actually yeah. existed that long. But I'm saying that when, if, if you're going to be repaired to your fullest so function, or if someone needs an amputee, if we're assuming that oh they're going to get an arm back, right. but someone who's disabled right. so like you would be, be given yeah, full like functioning, virtuous. that would seem to so mean that you might look actually in your 30s. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Even someone who's in their 50s might look 30 if they have not suffered 
enough damage to, you know what I'm saying? So that's, it, that's why it tracks with me that like, just, like, just looking in your 20s, 30s is just yeah. an analog for mature, but not yet like, why would you, damaged why would you to the point where you wouldn't yeah. recognize yeah. it as much as that. And know? I'm also thinking of like, scripturally, like they were walking up to the road of Emmaus and they didn't recognize Christ in his glorified body. Part of that could be explained because of, they, they talk about their blindness, but I think that was more like spiritual blindness, not like literal blindness. You know, yeah. and so, but his glorified body probably did look. I mean, it could look different than his actual. Yeah. You know, one on yeah. earth. Yeah. So he was like a decade younger. Clean shaven. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which maybe they, because they would have never seen him clean shaven because he was a Jewish man. He would have, like, I love it. That, no Jewish guy was clean shaven. That was genuinely against their religion. Yeah, I love it. They're like, look at this woman. Oh, sorry. And then they're eating dinner and they're like, this whole time I thought you were a girl. Like, yeah. That's it. That one's Your eyes were opened. The road to Emmaus is an interesting one because we're told so little. Part of me wonders if it's just like, if you if you watch somebody die, you're just not expecting them to see them anywhere else. So like, even yeah. if they did a lot of ways. walk yeah. up and yeah. start talking to you, would you? Miracle. Yeah. 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 What if what if one of the things they tell you, dude, you look a lot like this guy? But that couldn't be. Right. Yeah. I know, but yeah. like, yeah. but then their eyes were. Like, you would are that like guy. Yeah. Well, like when yeah. Scott Hahn pointed out one thing about that one, which is really interesting, where he knows that like, so Jesus you know, consecrates the bread, right? There's sort of like the second mass and Emmaus and that kind of thing. I mean, it's in the breaking of the bread that their eyes are opened. Mm -hmm. Han pointed out that neither of those two disciples were probably actually at the Last Supper, which means yeah. that they would have not, like, because for a long time, I kind of imagined that as like, oh, you just see, the, like, oh, Jesus, you, hey, you did the thing! Yeah. You said the <laughs> words! Is that you? But chances are these two disciples were not at the Last Supper, but they might have been. They might have been, but interesting. It's like, yeah. but it's like this idea that like he, he's like, I am God. I will come back. To it's, they did all of these things, and then he mm -hmm. dies, and they're disappointed because they didn't. It wasn't how they thought was going to end up. So they're like, Pack up. We're leaving. We're going home because this yeah. isn't what we wanted. You know what I mean? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like they had all this. And, he, and they still don't recognize him when he comes back, and he's like, yeah. You know what I mean? Part of it's also just that, like, the Passover is over, so they're probably just going home like they normally would. Because, like, you go to Jerusalem for the Passover, but then you go home afterwards. So it may just be that, like, they've, you know. It seems like the, the end, like, their itinerary is we go back to Emmaus, because it's only, like, seven or eight miles it away. It seems consistent with like what he did during his life, too. Because there were people who yeah. saw Jesus and didn't instantly know he was God. Like, they came to that knowledge after he did actions that allowed them, like, through his works, they came mm -hmm. to know him. It's not like he would, and also, Jesus is plastered everywhere now as this, like, recognizable, like, I'm, face. And they would have like, been more familiar yeah. with Right. Him than, oh, like, on this than, line? Yeah. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm basing off what I'm saying off the conversation that they were yeah. having with each other when Jesus came up to them. Mm. Which yeah. was kind of just... Mm. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, because they like already knew him. Basically. But yeah, this guy. Like they, they, it wasn't like they were like two randos. But it's also like, hard to hey, get a sense of. Did you hear about this guy from Nazareth? Like, <laughs> who knows like how <laughs> yeah, they were yeah. like in the inner circle? You know, like who knows like are there any, distributed. Are there any other? Yeah, are there any other? We might get in about about <laughs> about the author questions before I end the recording. No, okay, just cool. No, I think my you do read the, problem of angels are next, right? Yes, I read problem of pain. Required reading next time. 